Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. And we hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Hi Local Zero, it's Becky here. I just wanted to share our really exciting news that we're going to be recording a live episode of Local Zero during COP26, all about local action to deliver a just transition in Scotland and beyond. It's happening from 4 till 6.30pm on Saturday the 6th of November at Charles Rennie McIntosh's The Lighthouse in Glasgow City Centre. We've got a great lineup of guests from government, industry, community energy and academia. If you'd like to attend, please direct message us at Twitter at localzeropod or send an email to localzeropod at gmail.com and we'll provide you a link to sign up to. All right, now on with the episode. Hello, welcome to Local Zero. You're listening to Matt, Becky and Fraser. Hi, hello. So today we're moving our sights to all things COP26. That's right. I can't believe it's been almost a year since we started recording Local Zero and COP26 finally upon us. So it only seems fitting that for this episode, we start to think about our hopes, concerns and aspirations for this historic climate conference. Yes, the last year certainly has flown by. And to mark the occasion, we're joined by none other than Leo Hickman, director of The Carbon Brief. He's going to talk to us about why COP26 is so important, hopefully such a historic event for all the right reasons, and what we should look out for as these critical discussions get underway. We're going to have Biden, all these other leaders, rock up helicopters landing all the big razzmatazz and show of any of these kind of things they'll come in make a speech they'll go we're doing this we're doing that um but that's actually outside of the process in a way nothing to do really with the paris agreement so as always you can reach out to us on our dedicated twitter handle if you haven't already go and find us and follow us at local zero pod to get involved with discussions over there and if you've got something longer to say recommendations about what we should be covering next or views on what we've said before, you can email us at localzeropod at gmail.com. And of course, as always with Local Zero, welcome Fraser. It wouldn't be it wouldn't be a proper episode if you weren't here <laughs> taking the mick out of me and Matt. <laughs> hey guys, how are we doing? Great. Yeah. You? Uh, yeah, hanging in, mate. Hanging in. Uh, very, very excited about COP. I don't know, I don't know about you guys, how you're feeling. It's it's happening. It's it is happening. <laughs> we are T minus. Oh, I've lost. We're, we're down to days. That's all I know. Yeah. I uh, I went on the website uh, a couple of days ago and, and got my tickets for for three of the days. So yeah, gearing up for the events. Very cool. Just like Glastonbury. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Yeah, yeah. Sold out in seconds. Had to refresh Slip. the page and everything. Well, as we said, it has been 12 months since we started Local Zero. We launched the series with a year to go to COP26, and we've had a string of brilliant guests across our episodes. To help set up today's show, we've gone back to some of them to ask what is one thing they'd really like to see emerge from COP. Hi, Local Zero. I'm Emma Bridge. I'm Chief Executive of Community Energy England and a Yorkshire Humber Climate Commissioner. I want people and communities to be seen as essential at COP for achieving net zero. We need much greater ambition and commitment from all nations, but ultimately we need that ambition to be deliverable. 
Now that won't happen unless we ensure people and communities are invested in and supported to grasp the opportunities that Net Zero brings. As part of that, we need community energy to be recognised as a delivery mechanism for net zero and a just transition, with concrete commitments to remove the policy obstacles that prevent the sector achieving its potential. Hi, my name's Sam Gardner and I'm the Head of Climate Change and Sustainability with Scottish Power. The one thing I'd like to see come out of COP is momentum the intangible but so important momentum. And that will come from raised ambition, from commitments from the private sector, from improved NDCs, a whole suite of things. But ultimately, COP has to be a point of acceleration. Hello, Local Zero. My name is Lucy and I run South Seeds. The thing I'd really like to see come out of COP is support for the brilliant community responses to living sustainable lives here in Glasgow and elsewhere in the UK. Hi, I'm Dara Vias and I lead Citizens Advice's work on net zero and energy consumers in the future. What I'd really like to see at COP26 is the British government leading the way with a clear plan to make it easier for people to make the changes that we need to our homes and strong protections for if and when things go wrong. Right now, it's just too confusing and complicated. People need the government to help them and it needs to be simple, easy and fair. My name is Magnus Davidson and I'm a researcher with the University of the Highlands and Islands and also a director of Community Land Scotland. From COP26, I want to see a stronger commitment to a just transition as set out by the Climate Justice Alliance with principles such as equitable redistribution of resources and power, creating inclusionary spaces for traditions and cultures, as well as looking at regenerative ecological economies. I want to see a transition to net zero that works for all rather than a few. Hello, I'm Kate Swade. I am one of the co-directors of Shared Assets. I would like the people at COP26 to explicitly recognise that humans aren't separate from nature and to acknowledge the link between land use and climate change, as well as acknowledging the need for justice in the land system if we're ever going to come together to solve and prevent catastrophic climate change. Hello, Local Zero. My name is Jeff Hardy and I'm a Senior Research Fellow at the Grantham Institute at Imperial College London and I'm part of the Energy Rev team. I'm a big fan of the show and mildly addicted to future or fiction. So my ask for COP26 is twofold. First, that all countries agree targets commensurate with the Paris Agreement and second, that fairness both between and within countries is central to decarbonisation plans. So if you can make that happen, that would be lovely. Thanks. So, what are your thoughts? I mean, quite a lot of similarity along along some of the lines here, but actually, I think there were a couple of points which surprised me, and uh, really happy to hear. Yeah, I I was really pleased to hear you know talk about fairness. That that didn't surprise me, no. but I guess one thing that I drew across what everybody said was this idea of interconnected action. Mm. So you know, we need the leadership from government, but it's not just about our, our national governments making these agreements it's also recognizing that a lot of this actually really needs to be delivered at the local level by people by communities and so we need to have a lot more joined up action if we're even going to get anywhere I, I think the point made by emma and lucy amongst others was there needs to be action from government to enable local action or action from communities and individuals so one needs to act before the other can I mean, it's not entirely true, right? I mean, we can all go do stuff now without government intervening, but to support and facilitate. Oh, but it's very, very difficult when you don't have those those frameworks or that support in place to, right. to enable you to do that kind of stuff. Yeah. So putting you on the spot then, guys, adding, adding our own thoughts into this. We'll start with you, Becky. Oh. What are your hopes from COP26? I hope that it isn't just a talking shop. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so easy for these things to be just talking shops with this agreement that doesn't then translate through to delivery. And for me, that's got to be one of the most important things and not just delivering net zero, but enabling and setting up the frameworks and the clear guidance that brings in um, the industry, that brings in communities in a way that we can do this in a fair um, and just manner. Mm, I completely agree with that. For me, COP26 will be a success if it normalizes climate action. I think the big gap or big difference since 2015 the Paris Agreement is, I think that shocked the world in in many respects that we need to take action now. And this became 
parlance, you know, in many uh, individuals' vocabulary, which they, they weren't aware of before. They, they maybe weren't quite aware of how important this was. I think the big difference in the intervening six years is that climate action is something that most people are aware of. But we're talking as targets, as ambitions. Now, action should just be normalized. We should just be seeing seismic disruptive change and expect it to happen. We shouldn't be shocked by it happening and unfolding. But but I think that action should be kind of, it should become easier in the norm because I think about a lot of my family that don't even really know about COP. They never heard about it. If I wasn't mm. like yabbering on about it half the time, they wouldn't, they wouldn't know what was going on at all. <laughs> so I feel like there needs to be a way forward that enables action to occur without necessarily every single person having to step up and start thinking about things in perhaps new ways it's it's really challenging well it doesn't you know it's about making the abnormal normal and i think covid taught us that and, and most of us the bulk of us got on board with that and there was this sense of this is abnormal this is a crisis we all must react and i'm hoping cop26 takes that and translates it into climate action worldwide and your mum and dad my mum and dad friends siblings whoever the man, woman on the street. This is just normal now. I'm really glad to see the BBC. You've actually got a really interesting string of stuff going on. I saw uh, one thing tweeted the other day that there's going to be a super soap episode. EastEnders, Coronation Street, Emmerdale, all the big hitters are coming together to deliver a climate change special. Now, if that isn't going to make the masses aware, what is? <laughs> Fraser, I'm going to ping your question right back at you. What would you like to see? I think the main thing that I would like to see, and it maybe spins off the back of what Becky said about, well, who do we need to take action? Whose responsibility is this? We have world leaders, a lot of them with historic responsibility, or at least their economies, at least their countries with historic responsibility and power to affect change here who are inside this room, which is a very privileged position to be in, while a lot of the, the people in communities and countries around the world who feel the sharp end of this stuff are completely excluded while feeling the worst of the impact. Mm. So I think in terms of responsibility, remember that you're not just there should someone like a Joe Biden happen to be listening to this or a, a Nicholas Sturgeon or whoever. Remember that you have an added responsibility here to represent the the interests and voices of, of people who have been living at the sharp end of this, who have seen their resources decimated, who have seen entire cultures and, and communities and species and, and land and all kinds of stuff already damaged or completely lost. Remember that it isn't just your fight, it's everyone's fight. And as we're sort of, we've cut a lot of people out of this discussion at the high level, remember you have an obligation here to represent those perspectives as well. Oh, here, here. The second thing... Oh, he's on a rant, isn't he? Oh dear, he's on a roll. <laughs> I know. The second thing, once, you've, once you're finished giving me that uh, standing ovation, the second thing that I would like to see is I would like to see lots of our lovely and uh, committed listeners come along to Local Zero Live which is happening on the Saturday in the middle of COP in Glasgow. Yeah. What we want is there to be real live, actual citizens like you uh, and me there um, involved, but also stakeholders, uh, not just from Glasgow or Scotland or the UK, but, but internationally. So we want a real mix of people who can talk to how local action can unlock a just transition. Gosh, if that doesn't sell it, I don't know what will. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, that's it. That's the pitch. I should I should do those movie trailers. Uh, I just need a slightly deeper voice. So, I think without further ado, we we really ought to move to the the final segment before we bring in our esteemed guest Leo, and to talk about the good, the bad, and frankly, the pretty weird. So, um, who wants to go first? Maybe a good news story. Yeah, I would. I would like to come in with a with a good news story. This was uh, reported in the in the Guardian recently. Research commissioned by Scottish Power, among others, found that the UK public overwhelmingly supports serious climate action. So they found that ninety four percent of people in the UK support carbon tax at £75. 93% support better integrated public transport. 89% support raising flying costs. 82% support some restrictions on cars and city centres. That's always a controversial one. Yeah. And 77% support grants for homeowners to install heat pumps. The vast majority also saying that this should be government responsibility to fix and not left to the markets alone. So big, big support for big, big, serious climate action. Well, that's, that is surprising and very good news, right? I, I wasn't expecting those numbers. And that's, I'm really, really happy to hear that. No, no. Um, any other good news? I, I, I have 
uh, a kind of a good slash bad news one. So it kind of begins bad but gets good. It's on the back of the International Energy Agency's World Energy Outlooks. So every year they they basically publish a World Energy Outlook to look into their crystal ball and ask the question of what does the future of energy look like? And of course, this year we've got COP26 and an emphasis on those uh, ambitions and the pledges that have come forward. So the good news, I guess, in part of this is that a new energy economy is emerging as part of the ambitions, the pledges that each of our governments are making for COP26. Um, we're starting to see a new energy economy emerging. We're seeing uh, or hoping that oil will peak by 2025, new coal plants are going to fall off a cliff during the 2020s, and renewables are going to uh, go through the roof. But, and it is one hell of a but, these pledges, the climate pledges that are currently in place, will only limit global warming to 2.1 degrees Celsius. Now, for some of you, you'll think, well, two degrees, you know, or, or 2.1 versus what we often hear, which is 1.5 degrees warming. Um, half a degree means nothing to me. Well, it can be absolutely catastrophic, the difference in terms of extreme weather. Now, the issue is, is that there is a big gap between the pledges and the carbon emission reductions that these uh, provide and what we need to get to 1.5 degrees. And the current climate pledges announced close less than 20% of that emissions gap between basically business as usual and where we need to get to for net zero. Um, but I'll end on the good news is that the bulk of that gap left between what we've pledged today and where we need to be for net zero can be achieved by cost effective measures. We can do it. We've got the tech, it's mature, and we can implement it now. So that's the end of the good news story. That <laughs> that, right? <laughs> well, that is, that's, that's reassuring. And it's something that a lot of people have been screaming about as well is that actually there's more stuff that we can do with what we have at our disposal right now than we're already doing. And we actually know, as you've been talking about a lot, Matt, in the context of the uh, energy prices, the wider crisis, that it's never been more urgent, not even not just for planet, but for, for the people who live here as well, in terms of the impacts, in terms of prices, in terms of, of everything that goes with it. We're not on track, essentially, but we can we can make the difference. Yeah. And of course, Matt's got a very helpful chart uh, with Fraser <laughs> oh, and yeah, I. We love, a chart. <laughs> <laughs> love a chart. So we'll have to make sure we link that in. And yeah. Just you know, it, it just adds to the story, doesn't it? Um, oh, so come on, I'll do the downer. I'll, I'll, I'll be the depressing <laughs> oh, on, one Becky. today. Why not? Um, so I guess yeah, our bad news story is focused on China. What we're seeing is even though COP is just around the corner and we have a lot of reasons to be hopeful, China is going to be mining and burning more coal in the last three months of this year because of the energy crisis that they're going through in the country at the moment. Um, and a big part of this is simply because uh, of challenges around generating the amount of electricity that the country needs because of rises in price caps, uh, suppliers, uh, sorry, not rises in price caps, rises in energy prices. Yeah. And because of the price caps, it couldn't be passed on to customers. If that confuses you, because it still confuses me, <laughs> tune into our previous episode and listen to Jeff Hardy explain all about price caps. Yeah. Very, very um, important. And, you know, much like we're seeing uh, in the UK, the the lack of wind, the lack of rain has reduced renewable forms of generation. So they're having, they're experiencing this perfect storm. And really what that means is that they're going to be loosening restrictions on coal mining um, to, to deal with these blackouts. The, the, the deep irony of this story is twofold and there's two layers of irony. The first is that this crisis was largely brought about by China trying to tackle addiction to coal, which in a roundabout way increased electricity prices because the renewables weren't there to displace it. And then they're having to go back to coal. And the other is, as you say, that the effects of climate change are making extreme weather more common. Drought, periods of anticyclonic stillness, lack of wind. Oh, that was a good one. Say that again, Matt. What was I that? know. Anticyclonic stillness. I'm, yeah. Wow. It's, 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 <laughs> this yeah. is the geographer in you coming out. Weather it? geek here. <laughs> Closet weather geek. Uh, but, <laughs> so, mate, but, but basically these cl effects of climate change are meaning that some countries are having to reach to fossil fuels, mm. yeah. which is just bonkers. But this is the thing, and you, a lot of the same arguments were being made here about that as well, weren't they? And actually the answer, now, short term, there aren't a lot of a lot of options in, in the case of China just now. But that isn't 
isn't an argument necessarily to regress and to keep dependent on fossil fuels. It's an argument to accelerate that electrification effort, to diversify a renewable supply as well. Yeah, quite right. And it's about managing your grid in new ways and valuing storage yeah. and valuing flexibility and yeah. a lot of the same challenges that many other countries are facing at the moment. And I don't think anyone really has the answer to that. No. But hopefully the research and the innovation will continue to be pushed forward and, and we'll start to find better ways of dealing with these shortcomings. Yeah. And we must end on the weird, right? There's, there's a couple of stories here. Um, one of the places I want to visit on planet Earth more than any other is the Sequoia National Park in the US. I'm desperate to see it, see the redwoods. I'm kind of weirdly obsessed with trees and really want to see General Sherman before I die, who isn't a person, by the way, he's a redwood, <laughs> the, the tallest tree on planet Earth. And they're having to wrap these ancient Sequoia trees with uh, tinfoil, basically, like a baked potato to protect them from the ravages of these wildfires, which this could have easily been in the bad category. That isn't good. But there was something particularly weird about wrapping up a tree in tinfoil. Mm. Um, so that was my my weird uh, item for the day. That, that is weird. And I guess on the, on the theme of trees, in the honour of Her Majesty's Platinum Jubilee, which is happening next year, people from across the UK are being invited to plant a tree for the Jubilee. Yeah. Uh, isn't that nice? Rolls right off the tongue there. Really <laughs> so really encouraging that 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 kind of endeavour into tree planting, whether you're talking about, you know, uh, scout and guide groups. I was never a, I was never a girl guide. Uh, Matt, were you a scout? I did a bit of cubbing. <laughs> didn't quite, didn't make the grade oh, for scouts, certainly. They didn't want me. Fraser? <laughs> no, no, wasn't my thing, I'm afraid. <laughs> like, interesting story, though. Interesting story, you know. Like, there, there have been calls for much bigger action from the royal family, and I, I get hired far too often from the BBC to say what I would like to say about this, exactly. But, um, yeah, well, well, ho well, ho better than nothing. Hold your tongue, Fraser. This is, you know, <laughs> and plant a tree for the Jubilee. That's <laughs> all I will say to that. Yeah. Right, well, I think without further ado, we should get ready and introduce our special guest. My name is Leo Hickman. I'm the editor of Carbon Brief, a specialist website and team of journalists focused on explaining climate change, both the science and also the policy response. Brilliant. So welcome, Leo, and uh, thanks for joining us on Local Zero. It's great to have you along and such an important topic. And of course, COP26 is just around the corner, which I'm sure has been top of your mind for some time. But maybe you could just kick us off by giving, giving us a bit of an overview of like why this is such a big deal. Like what actually is at stake at COP26? I think... COP26 is, it's the biggest UN climate summit since the Paris COP back in 2015. And those six years in between have been pretty tumultuous. So you've had obviously the COVID pandemic, you've had a Donald Trump in the White House, you've had all sorts of, it's been a roller coaster, to be honest, in terms of the global kind of effort to reduce our emissions. So COP26 has been in the diary for a long time as being quite a landmark COP because back in Paris, back in 2015, effectively the world agreed, or the world's you know governments at that time agreed that they would enter into this thing called the Paris Agreement, which was effectively a sort of a rolling mechanism of every five years, all the countries would come together would pledge what they want to individually do. And then there would be an assessment, what they call a global stock take, to effectively add up all of these pledges to see whether that is going to meet the agreed goal of keeping temperature, global warming effectively below what they've described as, quote, well below two degrees C. And they added on at the last minute an aspirational kind of stretch goal of trying to limit it to 1.5 degrees which over the past five or six years has become this very symbolic, totemic, for, particularly for climate campaigners, this key, this key thing that we need to try and achieve uh, as a kind of species almost. You know, we need to try and keep glo global warming below 1.5. And the reason why COP26 is, is the biggest such meeting since Paris is that we're now at this stage where the countries have all come together again and are meant to be making fresh and updated pledges. Paris was very important because it introduced this thing called the ratchet mechanism, which sounds very technical, but effectively it is that. It's every, t every five years, 
every country must ratchet up its ambition and its commitment to acting on climate change. So that in totality, across all of the countries, when you add them all up, we should, in theory, be getting closer and closer to delivering that 1.5 degree goal. So this is our first big moment since Paris, really, to come together as kind of humanity, really, all the governments to come together and to try and assess this. To, to ratchet up ambition, essentially. Mm. So, so with that, Leo, what are the, what are the big sticking points? What do you see as the, the talking points which will be grabbing the headlines over the next few weeks and months? Well, it's not by accident that this process has been described as 4D chess. It's <laughs> incredibly complicated and it kind of it gives you a major headache just looking and thinking about all the all the issues that are in play. And the process, like many UN processes, nothing is agreed until it's all agreed. Um, and it's a consensus process as well. So one country can just put their hand up in a plenary session and say, Mr. or Madam Chairman, I don't, I don't agree with this. And the whole, that whole thing falls off the cliff. So you need everyone to agree. There was a very famous moment at the end of the Paris COP in 2015, where the whole process was held up for about two to three hours because I, off the top of my head, I can't remember who it was, forgive me. Some sort of Central American country basically said, we don't agree with this particular issue. And the rumour was that Barack Obama actually was asked to phone the president to actually talk them down from this position because it was holding up the whole process. Wow. So that gives you a little insight into just how much mischief making and brokenship can happen at these processes. And the power of small countries there. I mean, often, you know, obviously you've got small countries there being lent on by by a big country there but that but everybody matters every country matters in these negotiations it, it does matter and it can be a positive and a negative so you, it rightly a smaller more developing nation who's more vulnerable to climate change could put their hand up and say we're not going to survive this you know global warming at these levels unless you do x y or z so but it can equally be held up by and has notoriously been held up in previous years by petrostates saying, you know, our vested interest in manufacturing and selling a lot of fossil fuels is going to be massively hurt by this process. So it's incredibly difficult. And I think many people outside the process probably don't fully realise just how torturous and complex the negotiations are. So what sort of things are we talking about them agreeing on? Because obviously one of the big agreements that you've already mentioned was this commitment to keeping global warming levels well below two degrees. But it sounds here like that there are agreements around some of the finer details of this. So is it to do with specific actions or other more uh, intermediary goals? What are the sorts of things that are really up for discussion in these agreements? Well, you won't be surprised to hear that it boils down often to money. So you will hear a lot about climate finance and you will hear a lot about the $100 billion a year commitment that the richer developed nations effectively committed to this 10 years ago, saying by 2020, we will be... Um, putting into a pot effectively $100 billion a year, a mixture of kind of grants and loans, and it's all been a bit controversial about exactly what form of finance. But anyway, this kind of huge goal, and a lot of the developing more vulnerable nations agreed to that and said, okay, well, if you're going to do that, then that's great. But they've lost a lot of trust over that period since because that grand total of $100 billion has never quite got there. I think the last assessment that came out a couple of weeks ago was that it's currently at about 80 billion and we're a year later than when the target was. So that is going to cause a big, big fight and a lot of, you know, rightly in my view, a lot of angst and upset and will be used as one of the major leveraging kind of bargaining points within the talks. So that that's huge because, you know, a lot of the, the poorer, more vulnerable countries are saying, you guys, the developed richer nations, have just spent 150 years developing your economies, the US, Europe, etc., yeah. by burning an awful lot of fossil fuels. You've got us into this problem and you've developed at the same time. We now want to develop, but we, we agree we don't want to do it in a dirty way. We'd like to do it in a clean way, but we need finance and we need help to do that. And it's something we're hearing a lot more of in a kind of domestic context here about just transition. But often when we're talking about um, the kind of negotiations and, and internationally climate justice or energy justice tends to, to be the kind of watchword. What are the key issues here? I mean, you've mentioned um, lesser developed countries 
wanting to kind of play catch up and feel and rightly so that they have a right to that development. Are there any other key issues here around climate justice that you think are going to be centre stage of these negotiations? Carbon Brief, we've just published a whole week's worth of content around this and effectively kicking off with an article which just tried to explain that concept. There's a long history of that term and many different actors and many different parties have different kind of interpretations of what climate justice means. And it, and it has become a bit more complicated since the early 90s when it first became a big term. And when the, when the, the, the UNFCCC, as it's called, um, the kind of the, the UN body that oversees the climate talks, they, there was an agreement right back at the kind of the Rio Earth Summit back in the early 90s that effectively the world would be divided into two parts. It would be divided into the developed and the developing countries. And that divide was convenient at the time, but it's caused a lot of problems since. And what they call CBDR, which is an acronym you'll hear at the COP26, which is Common But Differentiated Responsibilities. Hmm. So this idea that different countries can go at different speeds and different routes to getting to decarbonisation because they're at different stages of development. The, 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 big, the big issue in the room now is countries such as China, which was in the developing nation portion and you could now argue that is it a developing nation anymore is it a major developing economy is it developed you know it, there's a middle class which of three four hundred million people which have you know salaries easily equal to in many in the west turkey's another good example it's not entirely clear where they sit in this kind of differentiation so that it muddies the water a bit on the climate justice debate. But I think there's there's the conventional sense that the vulnerable, low-lying island nations, the least developed nations in Africa and some in South America are definitely unquestionably a very different place in their development than other ones. So a big diversity of agendas and, and sort of contexts coming together here at the at the conference. Do you think that there are certain countries that are going to be perhaps more influential in the negotiations or, you know, in some capacity? Will it be the usual suspects or do you think that we might see a few surprises going on here? There's no getting away from the fact that the US and China, as the two biggest emitters and the two biggest economies and the two most powerful countries in, in the world, are absolutely key. The Paris Agreement would not have happened unless she and Obama met as they did a year before in 2014 and effectively agreed in a bilateral agreement between the two of them. And that, that was the that was the magic source that effectively made the Paris Agreement happen. Yeah. The dynamics are obviously different this time um, between the US and China. There's a lot, a lot more geopolitical tensions between them. But China, a year ago, committed to its twin goals of you know carbon neutrality by 2060 and peaking emissions by 2030. That is pretty big deal. Um, ha and when China says it's doing something, it basically does it. So you can probably <laughs> bet that it will actually more than meet those targets because it, it, it historically does tend to do that. And obviously, it's a, a different form of governance than, say, Western democracies, to put it mildly. So you've got very different dynamics going on, but you've got complete wild cards suddenly cropping up in the middle of the run-up to COP26, like the energy crisis, the energy price crisis going on around the world at the moment. Yeah. No one probably would have predicted that maybe a month or two ago, but that is, a, is unquestionably a factor. And exactly how all that plays out, whether countries get distracted by that or whether they still see the long game and they, and they play it you know, play it for the decade ahead as opposed to the next few you know, months or the winter ahead. It's, it's interesting you pointed that, Leo. There was something, that, and we mentioned uh, before you came on, uh, about the, the IEA's World Energy Outlook. And an interesting part of that, one of the headlines, was that actually the transition to net zero for, for householder bills, and they, I guess they're, they're talking sort of broadly, uh, globally speaking, can be reduced quite significantly. That the, the, the pain or the cost of those bills can be reduced roughly by 30%. Through that net zero transition, through efficiency and fuel switching, so I do wonder in these negotiations whether the energy crisis is going to be a force for good or evil in terms of pushing to net zero. Because I can kind of imagine uh, different outcomes, uh, maybe lapsing back into fossil fuels to get that security, to get that kind of low cost, but also obviously IEA pointing to a different future entirely. 
Yeah, and we saw a similarish thing happen um, a decade or so ago before the Copenhagen summit when we had the global economic crash and China in particular wanting to re-stimulate its economy through the the rapid short-term burning of coal. Structurally, it feels like a different economy now, perhaps in China. So I don't think that would play out in the same way in these kind of post-COVID times um, or, you know, all this narrative about the green recovery and build back better. It feels like many governments well, are at least playing lip service to it, at least saying that they want to not make those same mistakes that were made 10 years ago and actually use this as an opportunity to restructure and rethink what the economic stimuluses should be and chase green jobs, etc., etc. But yeah, it's it's unpredictable and we don't know how the rushes of this world will turn up at COP26 and what their own diplomatic and geopolitical play with gas prices is going to do you know to i mean there is a risk that it's going to spook the horses to to use an expression and it will mean that some people fall back on predictable old old habits but as the iaa and others have 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 pointed out if you're thinking longer term which climate change always is it's always a game of trying to avoid short-term temptations and thinking the longer game is that this crisis is actually highlighting just how vulnerable we are to fluctuating fossil fuel um, reliability and kind of being, you know, effectively addicted to fossil fuels. We've got to break the habit. You know, it's, we've been saying this for decades, but it's effectively it's highlighting just how addicted and we've got to withdraw from that. And, and breaking the habit, you don't break the habit by consuming more of what you're addicted to right but it it, but it requires and it does require big bold leadership across many key countries and do we have those leaders in place at the moment open question you could argue that the paris agreement was fortunate that barack obama was in the white house she in china was in the place he was at the time there were other interesting geopolitical dynamics. If, the, if it had happened when Trump had just been elected, well, obviously no chance. So you you have to ride your luck a little bit with the leaders you have at the time for some of these conferences. You know, people are going in and out of elections. Macron is going in France, is going into an election next year. You've got Germany just having had an election and kind of in a state of not really knowing what its actual leadership is. And therefore that influences what the EU's position is. Yeah, but I mean, to, but given the fact that COP has been delayed by a year, Biden's been in the White House for a year. I mean, historically, the COPs have always been scheduled after the the, the U.S. election, so we know who the president is and that they're you know the sitting president, and they can negotiate as such. Do you think it is a difference now? You're talking about all the pieces of the jigsaw being in place, and they need to be. You need to have those those in place for a successful negotiations uh, to, to unfold. Does the fact that we've had Biden in the in the White House for a year make a difference this time around? It it does make a difference, unquestionably. If it had been a year ago, it would have been Biden would have just been elected, but Trump would have still been in kind of wrecking ball mode, you know, in terms of trying to screw up Biden's le- legacy in his kind of last dying days in the White House. So it definitely is different. But you've also now got Biden struggling to get his package through the infrastructure package through congress and actually i do think it's quite important that that goes through congress before cop 26 which is looking really on a on a knife edge because it will weaken him i think if he comes to glasgow doing all the big talk about you know america's back you know america's going strong on climate action and he's just been seen to have not got his big you know landmark bill through congress you know, U.S. Congress, the, the the climate talks, the U.N. climate talks and U.S. Congress have had like an awful relationship for 30 years. It's effectively the U.N. climate process has almost been built around the fact that you'll never get anything through Congress. It has to be down to the president of the day. I mean, it's the whole world is basically being held hostage by the, the unique system that the U.S. has and the, the need for the Senate to pass stuff. Which and it always strikes me as, as just crazy, right? Uh, especially looking back over the past few years, you know, with Barack Obama followed by Trump and now Biden, it's it just shows you how how much uncertainty there could you know there could be because of all you know everything going on. Um, but I guess with all of this uncertainty uh, and you know lots of stuff happening in lots of countries that could affect 
the negotiations and the outcomes of the negotiations. How hopeful are you um, about a good outcome and, and what would a good outcome look like or a bad outcome if, if you're not hopeful? What does a good outcome look like has been, in effect, an unanswered question for more than a year, I would say. I remember, you know, the, the UK government often holds media briefings for journalists. And this has been a fundamental question that journalists have been putting to the UK government. Like, OK, you're COP26 um, host. Fantastic. What do you actually want? What does success look like? What do those front pages of the newspapers look like on the morning after the gavel goes down and it's it's concluded? What do you want? Effectively, the government have been really unable to answer that, I would argue, because you, you've heard Boris Johnson talking about cash, cars, trees, and whatever the kind of his slogan is. But those are kind of aspirations for outside of the process, because what we haven't really unpacked yet is there's a kind of inside the process and outside the process dynamic going on at the COP. There is the quite dry but incredibly important process of what is being negotiated at COP26, which is things like Article 6, what they call the rule book, the, the kind of instruction manual of how countries should operate the Paris Agreement. There's one key bit that hasn't really been agreed yet, and it has been left unanswered for three years or more, and it's called Article 6, which is effectively around carbon trading. You know, if you don't chop down your rainforest, I, I as a richer country, will give you some money to, to simplify it. The rules on that have been torturously delayed and it's largely down to brazil to be honest they they just won't agree to what effectively most of the rest of the world are happy to sign up to that is a very important bit of negotiation but that won't make any headlines the media are just not interested in that um, but that's really really important for the ongoing journey of the paris agreement in the years and decades ahead um, and then you've got outside the process on the first monday of the cop you're going to have biden all these other leaders rock up with their, you know, jet in on their sort of helicopters landing, all the big razzmatazz and show of any of these kind of things. They'll come in, make a speech. They'll, they'll announce what they're doing domestically. They'll go, we're doing this, we're doing that. We're putting, you know, investing so much in this. Um, but that's actually outside of the process in a way. That's not really, they're more political statements made by leaders. And that's, I think that's what Boris Johnson is referring to more when he's talking about car cash and trees and things because he's it's going to be and a whole bunch of corporations and companies will make announcements you'll get microsoft saying this you'll get apple saying that you'll, there'll be all sorts of things that are going on but that's actually got nothing to do really with the paris agreement in in direct terms you could say that indirectly it has created this global environment for corporations individuals campaigners countries all to sort of be saying their thing on climate change but there are some very dry and boring negotiations which will just not make headlines that are actually materially the reason why everyone's meeting in Glasgow in two weeks' time in terms of the, sort of the UN annual kind of bandwagon. So, Leo, I think to, to wrap up, this pod is all about trying to translate global climate crisis and try and translate these international developments into a language that everybody understands. So, for you, what... How can we translate this global climate crisis and COP26 into local climate action? What kind of short and long-term impact do you think COP26 will have on UK citizens and communities? I'm trying to think about how these two weeks will play out in your life, my life, over the next few weeks, months, years and decades. I think... COP26 in, in the UK context is going to be unique. We've never held one of these. We've never hosted one of these before, just like we hadn't hosted the Olympics for many, many, many decades. And it was a, a unique moment to galvanise us as, as, an, as a nation, as communities, to certainly think about climate change and, and hopefully act on it. For example, you know, there was kind of slightly extraordinary news yesterday that the three or even four leading soap operas in the UK, so like Coronation Street, EastEnders, you know, um, Emmerdale or whatever, are all going to, for the first time ever, synchronise their storylines for the first week um, so that you have and all be talking about climate change. That has been a holy grail. Of, I remember having that discussion maybe 15 years ago with TV producers and campaigners saying, 
the one thing that would be amazing would be to feature climate change on EastEnders. And, you know, that's never happened for. So now we've had this kind of amazing moment where you're going to have literally a kind of 30 million people watching TV soaps. And if you add up all those viewing figures, um, watching Phil Mitchell or whatever, <laughs> talking about um, the UN climate process. NDCs, it's, yeah. It's hard, it's hard to believe. <laughs> but um, but that that little th things like that are important i think in terms of the cultural poignancy of something like this coming to the uk shores and being hosted here and i think you know longer term um it will hopefully shine a light on you know i often get asked what should i do to help on climate change as an individual mm. and you know we can eat less meat or you know drive you know make different choices about transport or whatever you know, there's a whole host of things, but fundamentally, our right to vote in 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 a, in the British democracy, at the local level, the national level, referendums, whatever, is so so important. And it goes back to my point about being, for this to work at the global level, we've got to have serious, sane, mature, long-term thinking politicians in place. So, the only real lever of control we've got as individuals meaningful i would argue over the longer term is our right to vote so it should hopefully shine a light and we'll see a lot of climate campaigners at, at cop 26 making their point making reference to to phil mitchell's stance yeah. on climate change <laughs> we hope thank you so much for your thoughts and for your input it's been a really really engaging discussion and i'm hoping that you will agree to stay on and play future or fiction with us <laughs> yes that's fun brilliant in that case fraser over to you thanks very much yeah great great discussion leo love how you pretend that you don't sit and watch the soaps every night <laughs> you never said that <laughs> i could feel your brain working trying to pull phil mitchell out there okay so for the Uninitiated Future or Fiction is a game that we play at the end of every episode of Local Zero. I present our esteemed panellists and co-hosts with a brand new energy technology or innovation and they have to decide if they think it's the future, i.e. it's real, or if they think it's fiction, i.e. I've just pulled it out of my backside. So today's Future or Fiction is called Down the Tubes. That is Down the the tubes. So there's been a lot of controversy around public transport in Glasgow during COP26, with some of the most popular cycling infrastructure due to be closed around key areas of the conference for security reasons. But how about this? To keep active travel alive and Glasgow's green credentials alive, Glasgow City Council are planning to implement a series of makeshift plastic tunnels and protected cycleways staffed at each entrance to ensure security, to encourage people to keep cycling to and from work and wherever they'd like to go during COP26. Do we think it's real? Is it the future or is it fiction? Feel like I should know the answer to this, but I should also <laughs> I should I should say to Leo that I I'm, we're on the twenty fifth episode, twenty fifth time I've done this at least. Um, is that this isn't actually the name of a program or technology or anything? Which I yeah, Fraser has to remind me every episode. So so take down you know down the tubes with a, a pinch of salt. But Leo, what what are your what are your uh, your first thoughts on this? Yeah, it feels like fiction to me. I can't all that plastics that would need to be done. Why do you need guards at both ends? Why do you need to protect cyclists? Is it because of the the Glaswegian weather in November, <laughs> or is it because of yeah. security on roads, or the fact that Joe Biden might be flying over in a helicopter? More to do with making sure that cyclists aren't sneaking by the venue and trying to, you know, assassinate anyone. I think it's the. <laughs> So it's less for the cyclists. Nobody, nobody cycling here. assassins. Cycling assassins. Yeah. yeah, nobody cares about protecting cyclists at the best of times. This isn't yeah. for the cyclists. I think I'm going to have to go for fiction. I think. Yeah. <laughs> Matt and Becky. Oh, I just think about the uh, the this makeshift cycle route down through Glasgow Southside that you're probably all well too familiar with that <laughs> as well. And I mean, I think cycle route is probably a bit of an exaggeration isn't it it's some temporary bollards in between two lanes yeah. of the road so cyclists yeah. can go on one side of it so I feel like if that's setting the standard that's probably telling you something mm -hmm. my my other worry about this and the other reason I'm I'm erring towards the fictional side 
is because of COVID. Because the minute you put lots of people in a tube, I'm assuming that they're not going to sort out lots of ventilation unless you're just talking about some holes drilled every now and then. Yeah. And um, and I, I think in the kind of environment that we are living in these days, that that's pro- possibly a step too far. Probably more like a wind tunnel, to be fair. But yeah, I think uh, <laughs> it might be sort of overventilated. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I know there is a problem. As far as I last read, there is an issue with cycle lane infrastructure connecting in. So that part of what you're saying isn't, you know, Codswallop Fraser, that I know that the, the UN zone has kind of cut a lot of the, the arterial cycle lanes in half. Uh, there's a really good commentator on this on Twitter called Thomas Cornwallis, who is a, also a cycling kind of advocate. Um, I also know that they're completely neurotic, I guess, about uh, security. I think there are 10,000 UK policemen um, police people who are, who will be making their way from all around the country, where they've had divers in the Clyde, you know, checking out the security. Um, so yeah, I think on that basis this could could happen. Um, but I would take Leo's point that a big plastic tube to stop the cycling assassins is probably not a good PR look. <laughs> I mean, when you put it like that, I'm now more concerned about the assassins than climate change. <laughs> <laughs> when you put it like that, it sounds ridiculous. I'm I'm probably going to go fiction. Yeah. Okay, Matt's going fiction. Leo, I should say that uh, Matt has a history of of getting these wrong. So as a as a courtesy, we always come back to our guests and remind them that whatever Matt says, you have a chance to to change your answer once he's given his. So would you like to stick with fiction? I'm gonna stick, not twist. Okay. Thanks, Leo. Appreciate it, Becky. <laughs> I know the vote of confidence, Becky. <laughs> oh, I don't know now. <laughs> I was a little bit on the fence before. Um, go on, I'll go with future just to make it a bit more interesting. Make it interesting. The answer is... It's, of course, it's fiction. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's nonsense, yeah. You're not going to have new plastic tubes, you know, like slides coming out the side of a swimming yeah. pool to get us around to cop on bikes. What I would like to say, though, while we're on this and while I've, I've been ranting at the start of the episode as well, is that... In terms of public transport infrastructure, active travel, we are doing a lot of shutting stuff down all over Glasgow. And when we talk about the legacy that Glasgow City Council, Scottish UK governments want to have, there's there's definitely a seed of kind of resentment building, I think, general public locals around here, while delegates get free transport, all this kind of stuff too. So I would say if anyone Scottish government or Glasgow Council is listening, please, please sort out because it's a chance to do something really, really good and really cool and get people into new habits, but you have to support them to do it. Yeah, I, I have to say I'm at a loss about how I'm going to get there. Yeah. So, you know, do I cycle? I've got to kind of navigate an entire motorway complex to do so. But um, yeah, anyway. And I should probably also say that police people isn't an actual term. <laughs> I should have gone with just police before. But we'll put that down to exhaustion. Well, uh, I think that that draws an end to uh, to our episode. And a big thank you to Leo for uh, for all his insights. Really looking forward to COP and really looking forward to the Carbon Briefs uh, coverage of it. So um, you've been listening to Matt Becky and Fraser on Local Zero. If you want to follow us at Local Zero Pod on Twitter, please do so. And you can keep up to date with uh, all developments there. So until next episode, thank you for listening and goodbye. Bye. 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 Produced by Bespoken Media.